Christ around the world. And so I thank you so much for, for being a partner with me uh, as I serve with Unto. I have uh, the opportunity to share about my ministry and give a ministry update for those who have been partners with me uh, personally in the past. Uh, so that's going to be happening at lunchtime today, and I'd, uh, I'm going to be sharing a lot more about my ministry uh, there. But just so you know a little bit about what Unto is about, we are the humanitarian arm of crew, and our mission, our DNA, the core of who we are, is to take the kindness and love of Jesus Christ to the toughest places on earth. And we do that by relieving suffering, restoring dignity, and revealing hope. And our primary focus, though we we go into other places, is to use humanitarian aid to open up doors to the gospel in countries and in areas of countries that are highly resistant to the the gospel message. And so for many many of our people that we work with are in closed countries. Uh, and it's because of the aid that we're taking that we're able to take the message of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, again, I'll be sharing more about that at lunchtime. As for me, I was a pastor for 26 years. I've been doing this for four years now. Uh, my wonderful wife you can wave your hand here is here with me of 33 years. We have two boys. Both of them are married and out of the house. And uh, probably the shadiest part of my background is as I am related to Chris Recksteiner, if you know her at all. Um, and so uh, that's, that's the connection that's here. And uh, please don't judge me by her. That's all I have to say. Please don't. So... Uh, What I would like for you to do is, if you have your Bibles, to open them up to Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to give you a little bit of the the background, uh, the lay of the land here for Luke 19. Uh, This is Jesus cleansing the temple, and I'm going to be sharing from that passage. Um, this 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 time when he is coming into Jerusalem, this is Sunday before the Friday that he is is on the cross. And so it's five days before Passover, and everybody is coming in to Jerusalem. It is required by God's law uh, in the Old Testament that the Jewish people come together at the temple to worship three times a year. Those are the pilgrim festivals, and it is required that everybody come. And so those, those festivals are Passover, then Pentecost, and then the the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. And so everybody in the whole nation is descending on Jerusalem. It is estimated that this year that that there was between one and a half and three million people descending upon Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And you had to get there on the Sunday before. Uh, many of you, you might not know this, but that is Lamb Selection Day. And so you have people, and this is a big celebration. People are coming together. This is an annual festival. They're getting to the place that they're going to, and they're getting set up, and they're getting their food and everything. But on Sunday, on this Lamb Selection Day, five days before Passover, they are required to get a lamb. And it's a little baby lamb. And they are going to go and pick their lamb. Now, the lambs had to be perfect. 
And so you could bring a lamb with you, but to walk hundreds of miles or however long you had to walk was a very long and can be dangerous journey. And the chances of your animal getting injured or sick along the way were pretty big. And so since your animal had to be perfect, it was highly suggested and, and suggested in the Old Testament that you purchase them in Jerusalem uh, for the holiday. And so people were coming. And now if you do any of your holidays, does anybody have the, the tradition of going and chopping down your Christmas tree with your family? Some of you do that. Maybe some people go somewhere for a vacation. Maybe you go sh- on a shopping trip or you gather your family together to do cookies or something like that. That's what this was. This was a huge thing. And the whole family would get together, and they were on this day traveling into Jerusalem to pick the lamb. They were going to have that lamb with them for five days. They were going to get to know that lamb, enjoy that lamb. And I'm not going to go into all of that. And then at the end of it, they were going to be killing that lamb. And there was a lot of meaning and and intentionality with that. But as the people were traveling into Jerusalem... That's when Jesus showed up, and we call it the triumphal entry, and he's entering into Jerusalem with that. We're not, that's right before this, and if you look in Luke, uh, you'll see Jesus doing that, and then he prophesies over Jerusalem, and then he goes into the temple. And I need you to understand that picture, because in the temple on this day, there are one and a half to three million people coming in there. And there's all these animals, all the money changers, and, and you probably know this story, but I want you to picture this. And so now we're in Luke 19, 45 through 48, and I'm going to read this to you. It says, Then he entered the temple area, and he began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said, My house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And every day he was teaching in the temple... But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. And yet they could not find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. God blesses the reading of his word. So, the temple. The temple is at the, the top of the mountain in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's built on a, on a hill, a mountain. And at the top of it is the temple. And the temple is a very, very large area. You might have seen pictures of it in a study Bible or someplace like that, but there are three main courts. In the very, very center, the smallest part, was the actual temple where the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place were, and only the priests could go into those areas. Outside of that was uh, the court of Israelites. That's where men Israelite men and priests could go. That is where the sacrifices were, alter, uh, were offered. There was a big altar. There was a washing basin there and all of that. The next biggest courtyard that all of those things were inside, so they're sort of like boxes, but there's three of them and they, the ones in the middle. The next one out is the women's court, the court of the women. That's where uh, Jewish women and all the Jewish men could come. And that's where most of the singing, the worship services, the reading of God's word, that's where all of that took place. And then there was the largest court of them all. It was gigantic. And that was the court of the Gentiles. 
and everybody had to go through the court of the Gentiles to get to the deeper parts, but the Gentiles, the only place that they could go to was in this outer large area, this outer court. In fact, there was a wall that was about four and a half to five feet tall going around the entire perimeter encircling the women's court. And on that wall, there were large areas that were open, and you could go and you could walk through there to get into the deeper area. But on that wall was posted all along it, if you're, I'm, this is just my wording, if you're a Gentile and you go past this, we'll kill you. You're dead. That's it. That's the end. All right? No questions, no discussions. If you want to know how serious they were, you can look in the book of Acts and what happened when people said, just suggested that Paul took some Gentiles into that area, what happened to him. But you can look at that on your own. They were serious about this. If you were not Jewish, you could not, that was the closest that you could get to God to worship God. And, uh, and so that you can get an idea of how big this was, the Gentile court is estimated to comfortably hold 75,000 people. Now, to give you some, some uh, equivalence there, Gillette Stadium, I looked it up for you all. You know, uh, for, for, you know, do you know who plays there? You, know, you guys familiar with that place? Okay, yeah. All right, Gillette Stadium, maximum seating capacity is under 66,000. All right, so this is 9,000 more plus than Gillette Stadium at fully max capacity. We are talking about a lot of people here. And so they are in there. Uh, it's this giant area, but just so you understand, the Bible in the Old Testament does not prevent women and Gentiles from coming and offering sacrifices and worshiping God. This is something that had been added during the Second Temple period, and they used purity laws to say women can't get that close, and the Gentiles can't even get as close as Israelite women. They had set this up intentionally that way. But that was never what God had suggested. And so something had happened about 50 years or within 50 years of when Jesus came into Jerusalem at this time. And that was is that they moved where you bought the animals for the sacrifices from one part of Jerusalem into the actual Gentile court. Gentile court is huge. And it was highly convenient for all the Jewish people to be able to come up to there and to pick up their, their animals for sacrifice, to have the money changers there. You had to have money changers, and you had to have those animals. That was, that was required. You had to have a money changer because most people had different kinds of money, but Roman coins had the picture of the emperor on them. The emperor considered himself to be God. You can't offer to God in the temple money that has images of idols on it. You had to change that money out. It was necessary. Whether they were being uh, taking advantage of the space and the time that they were in and taking advantage of people, uh, there's debates over how much corruption there might have been there. I'm sure that there was some. But it wasn't the issue of them being uh, doing what they were doing. It was where they were doing it that became the issue. 
The same with the animals. The animals were set up for sacrifices and for purchasing these lambs. For this day, one day, they estimate that it was going to be a quarter of a million lambs in the Gentile court waiting to be purchased by those families that were coming all excited and ready. And let's pick a good lamb, everybody. This is going to be awesome. And the kids are all excited and they're coming in to buy these lambs in the Gentile court. Another thing that was taking place uh, in there uh, is, is that you had, uh, you had all of these different vendors and the vendors were there and they were owned by the priests, or the priests that ran the temple, they would, they would get kickbacks. And in fact, most of the lambs that were in the temple, they were all from Bethlehem, which is an interesting, uh, another thing to, to talk about, but they were all owned by the priests. And then in Jerusalem, at the temple at the top, was a walled area, and this was a walled city for defense. And there were several different layers of walls within the city of Jerusalem, for different protections. So if the enemy broke through that first wall, people would run behind the next wall and then the next wall and so forth. But what that did is it made total chaos for getting through the city of Jerusalem. And you can imagine it. And so you get there with your family and you're setting up your camp and everything. You're going to have a great time. And what do you do? Well, I know for us, when we go on vacation, it's like, okay, now we got to go get our groceries and stuff and get ourselves settled for the week that we're going to be here. And so people would go to the shopping districts, but that was, you had to go through several walls and, and you had to zigzag through the city to do it. But there was one really cool way that you could cut through all of that. But the temple was at the top and it was central. And so you could go from one entrance of the Gentile court and cut across and get to another part of the city without having to wind through the city. And if you read in the parallel passage to, to this one in Mark, it talks about what Jesus did with the people that were carrying packages through uh, at, at this time too. And so I want you to picture this because I, I did this uh, at one of my churches a long time ago. I was preaching from this passage and I didn't care that people understood the passage so much as I wanted them to experience what it was like. And so what I did is, is in a room similar to this, I set up two TVs in each side, blaring maximum loud, two separate movies. I had a boombox playing other music all at the same time, and I didn't allow anybody that was leading the worship, reading the scripture, or preaching use a microphone. All right? We were up here yelling the service at people, and what I wanted to do, I didn't have the guts to do it. I wanted to have some of the youth walking up and down going, excuse me, excuse me, between all the rows while it was going on. I didn't have the guts to do that. The people hated it. It was the worst worship experience ever. I'm here shouting out what Jesus was doing, and in the middle of it, we turned everything off, and there was an audible, oh, thank goodness, thank goodness, that was over. The point of it here is this. We can read about this in the Bible, but to experience it and to put ourselves into it. It would be like having every time you had a worship service, doing it at halftime at the Super Bowl. Or, or doing it at the entrance, the ticket entrance gate of like a theme park in the middle of summer. You know, think of the busiest, crowded 
the loudest, noisiest places that you could think of, and that's where you had to have worship. That was the only place that non-Jewish people could come to meet with God. And that was what was going on there. And I don't know how many of you are Jewish or not Jewish. I know that I am a Gentile, and so I am not Jewish. If I wanted to worship the one and only true God, that was the only place then for me to be, and that's what was going on. That's hard. That's tough. And and we have to understand that when Jesus is coming in on the last week of his life, that was what was taking place there. And so what Jesus does, uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing. He comes into the place and he starts pushing out everybody that's buying and selling. He's pushing out everybody. That 1.5 to 3 million people, the people that are in there selling, he's driving those sheep, a quarter of a million sheep, out of this place. And the whole time he's doing it, he's yelling, he's yelling those uh, quotes. He's going, my house is a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. My house is a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of robbers. And he's knocking over tables, and he's driving out animals, and he's pushing people out of there that shouldn't be there because they're not there to worship God. My house is a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of robbers. Now, often we will miss what's going on there. I know I did for the longest time. Jesus is using a rabbinic teaching technique called remez or allusion, which means hint or clue. He is in that, that phrase, those two phrases, he is quoting a very small phrase from a passage in the Old Testament. But what he understands and what he wants us to know is, is that he's not just talking about that little phrase, he is referencing the entire passage that that little phrase came from. All right, And so for us, that's really hard to understand. For them, their whole school system and education system was based around memorizing Scripture. That's what they did. They learned to read and write using the Old Testament. They learned their history from the Old Testament. They learned mathematics, which is actually very fascinating, from the Old Testament. And that's what they used. And they memorized as much of it as they could. And that's what school was. School was memorizing and understanding and interpreting God's word and how they were going to live that out in their lives. And so when, when Jesus quotes a little piece of it, for them, for many of them, all of a sudden, the whole context of what they were saying, all of a sudden, bing, comes into their mind. Now, for you, that might be really hard to understand. But if I was to do something for us, and I'm going to go through some old stuff as well as some new stuff. If I said snap, crackle, pop, what would you think? Rice Krispies, right. And so what are you picturing in your mind? A bowl of Rice Krispies and eating and all that kind of stuff. Because that's, that's immediately where you go to, even though those words have nothing to do with breakfast, except for they absolutely do, right? If I say finger licking good, what do you think? You're thinking of chicken, right? Why? If you were from another country and they were to say finger licking good, what would you be thinking of? I don't know, but it wouldn't be chicken, you know? It's like, ooh, um, you know, just do it. Nike, I'm loving it. Uh, they're great. 
Frosted flakes, okay. How about taste the rainbow? Skittles. How, how far apart is taste the rainbow from a multicolored candy? I mean, and yet you know exactly what I'm saying. If I were to put into the sentence, taste the rainbow, you would know I'm talking about candy. All right? So if I said eat fresh, Subway. See, you, you've been totally brain-melded by marketing people. Let's go to some other things. If I go and say to be or not to be, and what are you thinking of? Shakespeare and Hamlet. Uh, even if you don't know that it's Shakespeare, you knew what the second part of that was because it's so famous. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with a, a movie one. If I said, I be back. Does everybody know what that means? Yes, they all know what that, and it's not good. It's not good. But you all know what that means. And, you know, I could go with some scriptural ones. If I go in the beginning, you're, you're, God created the heavens and the earth, and you're thinking your, your brain goes to God speaking creation into existence. Um, John actually does that in uh, 1 John. But, uh, and if I said, our Father who art in heaven, we'd probably finish it off. That's what Jesus was doing here. That's exactly what Jesus was doing here. In fact, it's fascinating, and I'm going to just encourage you to do this. This is bonus. But if, if you see a passage where people, all of a sudden, Jesus says something, and it doesn't sound like all that bad, and then they want to kill him, look up the passage that he's quoting and read the chapter before it and after it. It will change your understanding of Scripture if, if you do that. And I'm just telling you that. I uh, take my word for it. But that's what Jesus is doing here. And, uh, and so I'm going to look at the first uh, remez or, or illusion. And uh, it's in Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. Uh, and then it... Uh, and so I want you to think about this. It says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him. So this is non-Jewish people who commit themselves or bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain. I'll give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For all nations. What is Jesus saying here? You know, I used to think that Jesus was clearing the temple because of the crime and the corruption. And you know what? You wouldn't be wrong if that was your understanding. That was a part of it. But the bigger part of it was is his passion that the whole world would know and worship God. That's for Jewish people and for everybody else on the planet, including Gentiles. Jesus was immensely passionate for reaching people for God, and he didn't care if they were Jewish or they were Gentile. And people had put up blockades to that. Again, this was the only place that they could worship. And if you look a couple of verses ahead, uh, ahead of what I was just reading in Isaiah, in Isaiah 56.3, you know, God promises that there would be no distinction between peoples when they came to his house. And yet, what do we find here? 
you're separated out. If you're Gentile, you're not good enough to come to God. You're not allowed to. And even if you say, yes, I can, it's in the Bible, and go through those doors, that opening in the wall, you would be killed. You would be killed. And that's, that's what it was like. And so Jesus is showing tremendous, tremendous passion here. He's also jumping into one of the eight great debates of, Jewish, of Jesus' time. The Jewish rabbis and different religious leaders, they would debate on how things were biblically interpreted. And there was eight huge debates, and Jesus enters into all of them. This is one of them, and you might not know that this was a huge debate in Jesus' time. So here's the eight great debates, and you'll probably recognize at least some of them, that what is the greatest commandment? Who is my neighbor? Divorce, hand-washing, marriage in the afterlife, healing on the Sabbath, the purpose of the Sabbath, and the eighth one is, can Gentiles be saved? Can you even be saved if you're a Gentile? And now I want you to think about it. What do you think the priests who ran the temple thought? Probably no. And so if Gentiles can't be saved and you have all this giant piece of area that you could go and have things so convenient for everybody and we can control it so we get the profits, you know, it's a no-brainer. Why waste it on the Gentiles? Really, truly. And, and so Jesus chimes into that, and, uh, and it causes quite a stir. The second remez, uh, you can see in Jeremiah chapter 7, and I'm going to be reading from uh, 9 through 11 and then verse 15. And he says, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, Burn incense to Baal, follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, the temple, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? You hear it? The den of robbers? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And in verse 15, he says, I will thrust you from my presence. And what Jesus is doing here is he is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7. And, you know, I used to think that the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus because it says it right here in this passage in uh, in Luke that they wanted to kill him because he cut into their prophets, you know, that they were losing money, that, that he was messing things up. And you wouldn't be completely wrong with that. But you need to understand what he was actually saying. He was calling down God's judgment on them. And so when he's going around and he's tossing the stuff out and around, he's, he's saying, you know, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. What they were hearing was, God is for the Gentiles and everybody, and God has condemned you, and you are going to be kicked out of the temple, and the temple's going to be destroyed. And to make that very clear, because you're saying, well, where do you see that? If you look at the very paragraph before this, at the end of the the, uh, triumphal entry, what does Jesus prophesy? That the temple is going to be destroyed. And here he is, he is quoting from Jeremiah, 
And in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is speaking to the religious leaders and the priests in his time. They're about to be invaded by Babylon, and the temple is going to be destroyed because of their corruption. And he reminds them, you know, guys, you're not safe. Do you remember Eli and the tabernacle and Eli and his evil, wicked sons in 1 Samuel? You know, where's that tabernacle now? It's destroyed. And now Jesus is saying, you know what? You remember Eli? We don't even know where that was. Well, that tabernacle has been destroyed for generations. Then the first temple was destroyed because of corruption. And now this temple is going to be destroyed for corruption. So what's Jesus doing? He is destroying these people. And you wonder why they wanted to kill him? I mean, do you understand why? I mean, he undermined their authority, he undermined their scripture, and he called down God's judgment on them in front of one and a half to three million people. And he was directly challenging them. And that is why, you know, it says, and they were looking for ways to kill him this whole week. The whole week. And Jesus was standing up and he was telling them what it was. And all they wanted to do was, we got to kill this guy. We got to get rid of him. God did this, Jesus did this, because he loves us, because he loves the world. And, and that's the passionate thing here. So in application of what Jesus did, some of the things that I come away from with this, first of all, is thanksgiving and gratefulness. Do you know how fortunate we are to be able to have Bibles to be able to come and to worship God right here and right now and not have to worry about people interrupting what we're doing like they did at that time. Or like our brothers and sisters around the world even who are hiding to be able to worship God because they're afraid for their lives. We need to be a people of gratefulness and thankfulness for what God has allowed us to have and the fact that he considers us worthy to be saved and to be called his children. I mean, that's amazing. The second thing, I think of those temple barriers, those walls that said, if you go beyond this, you're going to die. But I, often, I look at myself and, and I have to ask the question, do I have any prejudice in my heart, in my mind? Has my church set up things or done things in such a way that it makes it harder for people to come to Jesus Christ? You know, one of the, our churches, my wife and I went to in Scranton, and we had just our first Sunday there. I was sitting up on the platform because that's where the pastors sat. And my wife and our two children, who were little at that time, went and found a seat in, in the church, and they sat down. And a couple minutes before the service started, a woman touched, tapped my wife on, on her shoulder and said, I'm sorry, but you have to move. That's somebody else's seat. You know, how does that make you feel? And that's mild. That's mild. But you know what? Are there attitudes in my heart? Are there political things or clothing or music or whatever cultural things that I use and I say, you know what? I don't know if God can really love them. Or maybe it's uncomfortable for me to love them. Maybe I won't. I won't reach out. 
They did that officially. Sometimes we do that subconsciously. But I would ask you to look at your heart and consider, you know, are there things like that that you are harboring that could keep people from Christ? The next one was uh, outreach to the world and to community. Jesus made this such a priority and got the ball rolling for people to actually want to kill him at the very beginning of the last week of his life. He set it as a priority to say, God loves the world and he wants them all to come and to worship him. And don't get in the way of that. And I have to ask myself this, what am I doing to help take the gospel message to the world. Do you realize right now today, 2.2 billion people, that is over a quarter of the population of the world, don't even know who Jesus is and don't have a church that they could go to to find out and they don't even know a Christian that they could ask about? That if you went up to them and said, let me tell you about Jesus, and they're like, who in the world is Jesus? They don't even know more than a quarter of the world's population, 2.2 billion, have never even heard. We're, we have a long way to go. I mean, this is why missions has always been a passion of my heart in my ministry as a pastor. And this is one of the reasons why I have chosen to, to pursue this uh, now as a missionary. So there's that. And in the last point for us to consider. I know a lot of you are here at church, maybe you're online, you think you're doing good, you look good, you're coming to church, you're doing the right things, you're saying the right things. Are you being like one of those priests? And you're like going, I'm doing the right thing, I'm in service to God, I say the right things, but you are far, far away. You know what? It's not going to protect you. It's not going to save you. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. There were people there that they thought, you know what, I am leading worship and I am leading praise to God and I am offering sacrifices on an altar and yet their hearts were far from God and God says, I am not going to spare you from my wrath. I haven't ever done it before and I'm not going to do it now. You need to understand that salvation is a gift and it's a, it's a gift of grace, and it can only be, be received by faith. It's not about the stuff that you do. It's about the relationship you have with God. And I would just say this. If you don't know where you are, or maybe you're playing the game, and you're like, you know what, I'm just doing, an, I'm doing enough to have God be happy with me, you're not doing enough, because you can never do enough to make God happy with you. It's only through the gift of of salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so that is so, so important. Those are th- four things that I would have you think about as, uh, as you think about this passage. And uh, let me close our time in prayer. Father, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to come and share your word here. Father, I'm even, I'm even more grateful for how much you truly love each and every one of us. And that through your son, you were, you were so explicit in sharing that passion, that passion for those that don't know God, that you want everybody, everybody on this planet 
to love you and to be able to come to you. Father, I thank you that we have this opportunity to worship. I, I thank you for the salvation that we have. Father, if there's anything in me, in us, that is, that's causing other people to be hesitant about coming to you, Father, convict us and help us to change. Father, help us to be passionate for the lost and be willing to do whatever it takes to reach them for Jesus Christ. And Father, if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus by faith, that they're trying to do it by the things that they do on the outside, trying to be good, convict them and help them to know that that it's not by the things that they do, but by the gift of your son and because of your love, and that that comes through faith. Just thank you so much for this time. Change us, make us more like Jesus Christ, I ask. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.